Hello and welcome back to Running the Table, a podcast about running and playing tabletop role-playing games. I'm your host, Keith, and I want to remind you, if you would like to ask a question to me or to any of my guests, please email them to rttpodcast at gmail.com or send them to Running the Table on both Twitter and Facebook. Today, we have with us Tyler from Miss Rolled Adventures. Hello, Tyler, and thank you for coming on Running the Table. Hey, thank you for having me. Pleasure to always talk about stuff like D&D. <laughs> uh, for those of you who are unaware, Miss Rolled Adventures is a Dungeons & Dragons podcast that includes a healthy dose of homebrew and ingenuity. Taking place in a modular campaign setting based on the continent of Faerun, the story combines novelty with a sense of familiarity that old and new listeners alike can enjoy. But that's just my take on it, so why don't you tell me a little bit more about Miss Rolled Adventures, Tyler? Well, we are recently breaking out of a hiatus, finally, for new tech. Um, the whole turning digital situation has been uh, a drastic change, because initially we were all just at the same table and could play face-to-face. Oh. But turning it digital has been both rewarding and also... Um, it takes an element of ease from having to plan things. So it's been uh, a bit extreme for the change, but I'm excited to get back into it. We have two mm -hmm. campaigns that we do run. One is a, like you said, modular campaign. We're heavily homebrewed and drastically off the rail from the module. It initially started as Horde of the Dragon Queen leading into Rise of Tiamat. And at this point, we're doing a character development phase. So a lot of them have learned of something that initially started since before we began the campaign over two years ago. Each of them figured out something okay. that uh, linked themselves to each other. And now they're trying to solve some of those dilemmas. The other campaign that we run... Interesting. Oops, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, interesting. I was just going to ask, what's what about the other one? The other one is something that I haven't seen a lot of. Um, it's called Double Time. The reason why we call it that is because me and my one of my friends who's a player in the, the Great Gods War, the, our modular campaign, we both were mm -hmm. stuck with uh, DM Syndrome, DM Forever Syndrome. And just wanted to play. So we were trying to figure out a way that we both could play in mm -hmm. a setting that allows both of us to actually have control while the other person is also being able to play in bits and pieces. So what we figured out was we play a same character that has two minds. And every real life hour the minds swap places and the person who was DMing becomes the player. Each mind has their ah. different efficiencies, skill sets, spells known, and is essentially the s in the same body, just a completely different mindset. And that has delved into the fact that the entire campaign is 100% homebrewed, or not homebrewed, um, improvised, because we have two DMs trying to correlate a story back and forth so it's uh <laughs> both hilarious and then also it 
oddly serious in some cases. It's there have been moments where I've been able to make my friend cry, and it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is definitely something that I have heard a lot from various DMs and GMs of being able to make your friend cry. <laughs> <laughs> Real tears of emotion just feels so great. Not in that you wanted them to be sad, but in that you were able to convey something so meaningful to them. Oh, yeah. It's... Yeah. There have been moments where we both just died of laughter. He's uh, gotten extremely sad, like I said, or emotional. Um, there have been moments where I've broken pencils out of, like, character rage just getting enveloped in this improvised <laughs> world is just tons of fun. Very fun. Uh, so I have an inkling as to what this might be, but just in case I'm going to ask it anyway, I ask this of almost all my guests. Uh, what has been your biggest challenge that you've run into in your time as a dungeon master? Um, it would have to be keeping... A stable schedule between everyone um we have six players at the table so it can get difficult to manage between everyone's times and everything like that but in game wise it's keeping the game going because a lot of times we're all old high school friends and when someone makes a joke then everyone will start derailing rather quickly so it's like i have to maintain that balance of both allowing the fun and then being like hey let's uh you guys are about to be killed might want to look into what you're doing here so uh hmm. it's definitely just been the scheduling and then keeping the game itself on track while still allowing them <laughs> to have their own creativity yeah uh can i just say that it's it's very telling when you come off of an improv t describing an improvised campaign where the DM and a player keep switching back and forth and you have to just make up a story as you're going and maybe just slip back into a character role suddenly and your biggest challenge is getting everybody in the same room. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh... It, having that one-to-one -one campaign has been such a refreshing breath in comparison to like normal mm -hmm. dm tasks that i have to do like i don't have to make maps i don't have to think up npcs it it's so just relaxing and i don't think it'd be something that i'd mm -hmm. only want to do because i still love to write but uh it's just like a break almost which is odd because it is probably more work on the mind than anything else I can see that. I, I can definitely see that. And getting a chance to have to flex your improvisational skills is probably both fun and taxing. Yeah, we like to use the... Um, it's not really the yes and, because there's moments where we kind of have to correct ourselves or go back and be like, hey, this actually happened. But usually we just don't... We don't go back... We don't redact a whole lot. But... um Mm -hmm. The main thing about it is that we just don't immediately write over ourselves. So, like, if he, as the DM, brought up this character and they acted this way, once I became the DM, I don't immediately just go, well, they were only doing it because they were being toyed with or something like that. It's not, it's not breaking what the other person did. It's adding to it. 
So yeah, it's just been a nice kind of like refresher to just like ease yourself into a main big thing like a the modular campaign. Mm-hmm. Um so in in the interest of that, I'm sure that you've probably got quite a few of these, but one of the questions that I'd like to get us started on uh, is what has been your favorite non-combat session or encounter that you've run for any game? I get this question a lot, and I think it's because there's a lot of people out there that may not be the biggest fans of combat. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to hear what your favorite that you've run has been. <sighs> there. So when we initially started, at least started recording, uh, the group was traveling from uh, Baldur's Gate to Waterdeep in the Horde of the Dragon Queen. This was completely off the module um, with differencing factors to it. Um, for several sessions, it involved a lot of role-playing between the group as they acted as a caravan or acted as a member in this entire caravan. So there was full-blown NPCs that are every single character was named out, um, written in. Each of them had their own different properties, what they were trying to do, what they were going to do, their attitudes. So it involved a lot of that, but then they also had to be cautious because they were expecting this group of cultists to be in the caravan as that's what they're chasing after right now. Um, Well, at Mm -hmm. the time. So they've been, it was a lot, there was some moments of combat, but not as much as um, uh, was needed, I guess. But um, probably one of my favorite moments would have to be from that journey itself was uh, as they went to um this uh swamp the characters had or the players had to decide on a few factors that they didn't necessarily know about but um one of them was just fording through the swamp which they did but as a result none of the player characters could sleep for three days and it became an extremely taxing thing and one of the moments was they had to ford across this uh, the Winding Way Rivers. Well, trying to figure out what they could do while their physical bodies are completely exhausted, it was interesting to see what they could try to do, especially considering some of the players eventually learned that there was slime on the surface of the Winding Way River. So it was okay. just seeing the players learn is some of my favorite moments. Oh, I'm going to change my answer to a fast one. Um, <laughs> the moment that they realized that there was a link between each of the characters, well, most of the party from um, beginning of the campaign, they had been separated. Basically, each and every one of them had a reason be in the in the party they had a reason and a purpose that was secret to only themselves and to none of the others so throughout the entire campaign of two years they had been secretive to each other they had been segmented separated shifty 
and just cautious of each other. The moment mm-hmm. that they learned that they were others and they were linked, essentially, instead that their backstories were linked in some way, they fully sat down and strategized what their next step was, which was something that they had never done before. And as a DM, <laughs> it was like, my my children, they're they're learning. <laughs> <laughs> It was it was heartwarming, and then also when what they were coming up with, I was like, I need to write some of this stuff down. I need to use this because that's way better than what I had planned. So let me just rip that page out, write down what they're writing. <laughs> it's always amusing, especially when uh, the players come up with something like, you know, I'm I'm gonna this hallway is super suspicious to me. I'm willing to bet that there's traps there, there, and there, and it's just like. I mean, there weren't, but now there are. <laughs> Say, speaking your mind is a dangerous game to play in tabletop RPGs. <laughs> oh. There was nothing there, but now that you mention it, that is perfect positioning for a trap. All right. Yeah. Traps there. You found them. Good job. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. You gotta be careful with that because yeah. sometimes they work if they plan that. They plan to make you think that they want this. <laughs> <laughs> uh and uh the next question that we've got which thank you that's always a, a fun thing to hear is the favorite uh non-combat session but uh i think that this one's a great one for you to talk on uh what is your favorite homebrew rule that you've seen or used so what made it so special to you and why did you like it so much so when I first started out, I didn't know, because initially I only watched other groups and listened to a few other groups before mm-hmm. actually starting to play. I didn't even have a book, didn't have the player manual, nothing, until I started watching. Um, I knew my friends, and I knew my friends' idiotic choices would come into play when first starting, because we started out <laughs> at level one from the get-go we started out low mm-hmm. and i knew my players were gonna have problems specifically the spellcasters one of the homebrew rules that i like i've changed it a few times but that i like is the ability to change known spells the biggest part that i've seen with some of the classes is you're kind of locked in with spells until you level. And then even then, you still can only change like one or two. It com- becomes a difficult thing, especially for players that have never played before and not ever known what these spells possibly could do, just what they want to do, how they want to play. So one of the homebrew rules that I did was when you finish a long rest, you can change up to a total of three spells but they have to be it's a little complicated but basically if you have first to third level spells you can change one of each of those spell levels into another spell of that spell level Mm. so you could change a third level spell into a different third level spell but only when you level can you change them from third level to like second or first and i changed it to where you can just fully change your spell list when you level if you wanted to, rather than have to 
slowly change them out. And I did that because a lot of the players don't necessarily know what they want. There's so many different things that you can do with spells and what spells to learn that it was almost, I felt, punishing to the players who couldn't change at all. I think only one of the players was a druid or was a warlock when we started. And I don't even think warlocks can actually change. So initially, none of the players could even change their spells. And that's when I realized after session one, pretty much, session zero, basically, that they're going to want to change their spells. Because yeah. one of the players, yeah. the bard, my idiot friend, who I love, <laughs> didn't take a single offensive spell. Nothing. Not not a cantrip. Not a projectile weapon. Not any spell other than supporting spells because he wanted to be the supporting character from other RPGs. That doesn't exactly work when you can't defend yourself and you only get two. I will say <laughs> I will say I have had a player do something like that and they were very successful at it. It ended up being that they took spells not necessarily to support each other support others in the way of, say, heals or buffs or anything like that, but they took all the spells that they could that hindered opponents. See that Things way. like uh, Hypnotic Gaze. Oh. Yeah, the thing was, was that we were still level one, and mm -hmm. he didn't pick the best spells to try to be. He took, like, Heroism... And a few other things oh, okay. um, that were single target people, as well as all concentration spells. I think because he had he had disguise self, heroism, and a third one I can't remember off the top of my head, but it just didn't that turn out very well. And so having them yeah. being able to change is just something that I think allows them to test out ways that they want to play. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm totally behind this idea, especially for new players playing in their first session. Being able to change at the drop of a hat is worth it. They definitely need that kind of flexibility. Yeah, and I, th um, I think the limitation of only up to three, especially at later levels, because you have, like, 17, um, still makes it somewhat like, I need to decide what I want to do, not just throw everything together randomly. Because you only get yeah. them, you get, you're stuck with that the entire day. If nothing happens, then great, you can change some more. But if something happens and you're stuck with these spells that you wanted to jokingly use, you're stuck using those spells that you wanted to jokingly use in a very dramatic scene. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's one of those things that as they get more familiar, you can be a little less lenient on. Mm -hmm. And in the very early stages, you can even just be like, Oh, I know you didn't. You you tried out Bard and you didn't really like it. It's totally fine if you want to just be a warlock instead. I I actually went through that. One of my players was a warlock. Started out, um, said he was bored. He didn't enjoy the man the way that uh, warlocks, or at least the way that he played at the warlock. It was just he felt he only ever used Eldritch Blast and didn't use any of the other functions. Um. 
so he's like, can, is there a way that my character could change? I'm like, what are you looking to change into? I'm like, uh, maybe a druid. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty big change, especially considering your charisma is like a 16 and your wisdom is an 8. So give me, <laughs> give me some time. I figured out a way to change him into a druid, but having like a semi... Uh, time cost that he had to do when they were traveling to a tribal camp of moon druids which was just I had written down before he wanted to change which was perfect um, he had to train by balancing on top of a wooden plank that was balanced on top of a stick that was then balanced on top of a rock and to do that he physically scarred his face from the number of falling and eventually once he was able to balance he meditated in that posture. Every hour, I allowed him to change one of his charisma stat points over to wisdom, up to the same amount that was his uh, base stat for charisma initially. Basically, a meditation on how it's not how eloquently you can say it, but how effective your argument is. I'm <laughs> joking around, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that, I think, leads us into our uh, listener-submitted questions, uh, the first of which I think I think that you might have something to say on this from what you've told me about your players so far. Uh, everyone brings a bit of themselves to their characters. Do you have any notable examples of where this went very wrong or where it went very right? Yeah, I have I have one for both. Um, mm -hmm. one of the players, he he knows the game. He's played it a lot. He's played in other campaigns. Um, because we initially started with only four, and now we're up to six. Um, and that knowledge that he had, he brought over to his character. Sometimes unintentionally, other times not unintentionally. And there I there were moments where after the session I had to I had to get to him and talk about like how his character would know some of these things and it was um mm. semi awkward, but we came into an agreement and he fully wrote out a backstory, which was one of the biggest problems that I had, was that he didn't give me anything to go off of so that way we can establish what he would know and things like that so that definitely was where he brought in some of what he knew into his character um on the flip side one of the other characters who um one of the players who initially didn't actually enjoy playing the game too much didn't uh didn't start out enjoying it because it took so long there was a lot of dialogue stuff and a lot of t like statistics that he just wasn't in the mood for but um now he's completely like invested into his character he's got a voice and everything like that and he's brought in his kind of protective um and uh very like straightforward personality into his character and it's fleshed her out immensely. Um, mm. And it tailored to uh, 
the task that his character was actually given at the beginning of the game, which was to protect those around him. So it it tailored very well to how his character was initially built, I guess. <laughs> it was it just turned out right for um, his character and how she kind of progressed. Okay, that that's a very good one. Um, I have uh, I have definitely experienced some similar interactions with uh the with regards to the meta <laughs> knowledge. It's a uh, it's definitely a challenge to overcome, uh, especially for new players, knowing certain aspects of the game or being aware of certain plot elements or even just something that happened behind a closed door that you probably didn't hear. Yeah, it was. It was more so meta knowledge of between players was hard. Like if uh, one player had a psychic thought that they had um, delivered to another player using some kind of spell or something, um, it's always it was tough to kind of be like, your character doesn't necessarily know any of this happened, so play it out kind of like that. If they bring it up, then absolutely discuss about it, but your character doesn't have any reason to not trust this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got so bad in one of my games that I had to say, if you're using sending or message, you need to give me a note, and I will <laughs> hand that note to the recipient. Yeah, there was, uh, early before we started recording, one of the play or two of the players, um, made plans on, like, formations and stuff. I'm like, that's cool, but you guys are in two separate rooms. How are you guys planning these out between rooms? Like... How do you know mm -hmm. that that person over there is standing there through the wall? You're not going to know that. Like, I'm a big thing with, especially with sending. Sending is a perfect example. It, it specifically states with relevant knowledge of where the person is standing. It specifies that. And I have had several instances where my players are trying to use sending towards one another. I'm like, you guys are, don't know where each other are. Especially when yeah. you're invisible. <laughs> you definitely don't know where each other are. <laughs> I mean, you could always roll a perception check at disadvantage to <laughs> figure it out, but... Oh. It, it's, yeah, uh, it, it's... I've had instances like that. I can definitely agree with you there. Sending is one of those spells where it's... It's so useful. I can't ban it or anything. And I don't plan on... I haven't banned literally anything. But, um... I have had to tell players to involve me in the texts that they have, so that way I can at least know it's happening. Because <laughs> the the planning yeah. behind the scenes is fun, and I like it, except when it kind of goes against what the rest of the group is trying to do. I don't know how to describe it the best I can, but it's like when your players yes, are discussing yes. knowledge about something... It's important to know what your character's knowledge is. And if you're going off of meta-knowledge that you already know, then it becomes difficult to sp divide the two. So that's why having that mediating and... like factor of the DM to say your character doesn't necessarily have the knowledge of this specific religion to tell that player, 
then it mm-hmm. dictates kind of how they inter- interact. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> especially for new players, it can be very difficult to divest personal knowledge from character knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is definitely not something that you want to bring into your character. No. Uh, but bringing in bringing in character traits to add a bit of realism to how your character interacts with situations, such as your player bringing in their protective nature, that is phenomenal. That is a great way to kind of invest yourself in a character mm-hmm. and also flesh them out a little bit more. Oh, yeah. And um, he's loved D&D now. The biggest issue with him initially was the time constraint because we only played once every three weeks because we had six people seven including myself mm-hmm. um so we recorded once every three weeks for six hours six to eight hours so that took up an entire saturday <laughs> yeah that some of these games can be a large time commitment yeah if you let them be yeah yeah and uh that's even more so if you want to incorporate other elements, which actually kind of brings us into the next question. Uh, the next question is, do you think that there is a way to incorporate LARPing into our games? I would be interested in seeing a combination of active and sedentary play. Now, as a caveat, right now, LARPing together in person, probably not the best idea. No, there... It depends on what you mean by LARPing. Is it, like, throwing swords and attacking each other? I don't think so. But I have done a few things at the table that is based off of real person actions. And that was inspired to me by um, an amazing group of uh, other content creators, uh, Dragons in the Dining Room. Um, One of their DMs had made and i i'm I'm not talking about like just digitally crafted or something they baked a fake heart and had the players have to reach in to pull out something (laughs) that is both horrifying and incredible so that inspired me to do a few things one was to make a lock like i had a, a physical lock that they had to um try to crack and every time they pulled on it to decide if it worked um there was uh fact negative factors to constantly trying um another thing that i enjoyed which isn't hard to do you can actually google up some random page filler nonsense to have make a diary like if instead of just having a diary and then telling them what's on the pages literally make a diary with several pages that aren't relevant some things that are i gave one of our players <laughs> who doesn't know Thieves thieves Can't, which is a, a hidden language amongst the rest of the players, um, a 14-page document that was all in wingdings because they couldn't understand what it said <laughs> until they gave it to <laughs> another player, who then I gave the translated document to, and it was up to that player to literally read the pages and pick out what was actually important and what isn't important. So it gave that person who's also not necessarily um the most interactive in role play due to being so freshly new to this to the game um a, a sense to shine really 
and to use what they could do specifically as a character to this document. Very fun. I have also brought in uh, real-life physical props. Uh, one of the things that I did was I had a uh, a secret message book that was used as a log that I actually just wrote out the messages in a log book and handed it to the players and let them struggle to flip through and figure <laughs> out what was going on. That's great. Um, and in general, I'm all for the inclusion of physical props uh absolutely a cake uh, a document a diary a code book or a log book or even just a shipping log for when they're looking for when particular shipments came in or left and looking for irregularities or anything like that if you know it's going to become important to the plot you can make it oh yeah some of the some of the super fun things that I've uh, wanted to do, but just God knows that I'm not. Well, a we're all digital now anyway, so it wouldn't it would be irrelevant. Mm -hmm. But uh, my plan was to get several filters and bottles, and literally have them try to create a specific uh, concoction that they needed to make to pour onto a sigil. I was like, you guys got to make it right. You got limited resources sitting in front of you. Here you go. <laughs> make a science <laughs> experiment out of the whole thing. I feel like some of them would right. absolutely be like, I'm not touching this. No way. <laughs> but some of them I know would love, have loved to do it. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and, well, I, I actually kind of assumed that uh, this question was probably initially geared towards the physical like fighting aspect of larping i think that just doing the props as a narrative form of larping is much easier to do at the table it's a lot easier for several things one of yeah. which would involve hygiene um a lot <laughs> of movement and a lot of physical activity could cause the room to smell a very unpleasant odor if you are within a cramped space. <laughs> um, but thinking on, like, physical possibilities, I can't really imagine doing that. Because... The... I, I have issues with the potential of doing, like, a physical combat because many of the games that we play, it's all of the characters are meant to be working together. And to pit them against each other, even as, like, you are taking on the goblin persona right now while they're fighting, either one takes their character out of the fray, or two turns them against each other, or three does both. And... It ends up just not being the most effective use of resources, I feel. Yeah, I'd have to agree. The um, You said the factor of takes them out of the game. It absolutely does, because they're not paying attention to the board anymore if they're the ones that are out in a LARPing position with another person who's acting as the goblin or something. Because yep. the person who's acting as the goblin probably doesn't want to i would assume i mean i'm not that's a that's a bias i suppose but um i know i wouldn't want to 
because I, I'm a planner and I like to think on the field. So if I'm doing something physically that's distracting me from being able to make those plans, it would become kind of against each other, like you said. Um, if if LARPing is something that you're interested in, I would suggest looking into LARPing activities, not attempting to incorporate them into an ongoing campaign. Yeah, maybe if you wanted to, you could... For instance, if um, you were recording your sessions, maybe not uploading them, but just recording them so that way you had enjoyment, you could turn that story into a LARPing session. You have the script. You have what happened. You could live action that entire thing from start to finish. If you're, if you're, it's, it's like LARPing doesn't necessarily fit very well with TTRPGs because it's a table. (laughs) <laughs> it's hard to live action a table <laughs> the uh other thing that i will say is for you larpers that are interested in tabletop rpgs you could easily add some intrigue to your larping by having a table session where you're all just sitting down and talking if you want to pass a dm my way i mean i have plenty of uh stories that i could give you some ideas for <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've always wanted to do LARPing, but I just haven't... I'm in Minnesota. There's not a whole lot going on up here. The only way that I could see LARPing come into play is some aspect of... uh, For instance, I know that there is a large medieval battle reenactment scene out in uh, Pennsylvania. Oh. And I could see potentially, hey, you guys are going to be fighting in a war rather than having, you know, like... A whole big thing. We'll just all go to this <laughs> event that is just a battle, and that'll be our like campaign session that time, and we'll make an event out of it. And however that kind of comes out, if our side wins, you guys win in game, and if our side loses, you guys lose in game, and we have to go from there. Yeah, I have repercussions based on that, that kind of that kind of incorporation could work. Where it's a one, it's a consented build up big event where everybody's on one side uh, or something that you break out to. And then maybe next week or two weeks out or three sessions out or months out, you come back. Yeah, that's it. Planning it like an event sort of thing. I would see for sure. Um, But yeah, those, those large scale things are really the only thing I could even imagine unless you're doing like, how can you stealth? How can you, like, there's so much that is imaginative is so much easier than physically trying to maneuver it. Unless you want to walk in with 150 pound plate armor, I don't think it's going to be the same. (laughs) (laughs) Coming in as a full suit of armor, hey, that's live. At that point, every single time you roll the dice alone, you're going to hear enough clanking. It's going to break your stealth. Yeah. I think that there's ways to make an event out of it uh, and ways to bring props into the table that kind of brings reality to your role play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actively switching between them in a single session uh, it doesn't seem like the best idea or the easiest idea. No, for sure. Especially if you don't have a lot of space. 
And you really can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like when we started recording, we we rented a room in my apartment complex that was a kitchen. There's not a huh. lot of space in that kitchen. We fit about a singular square table in there, and everyone sat around it as we had the microphone in the center of it. It was hot. That's why I was talking about the odor things, because there was a lot of odor going on in that room. Oh, no. <laughs> it, was, it was not pleasant. Oh, no. <laughs> it was not good. And too many times I was like, we need to take a break, because I can't breathe. <laughs> People, please put on deodorant i swear to god <laughs> this is this is killing oh. me <laughs> oh all right well uh with with that uh, uh lingering <laughs> comment uh, i think we're going to go into our next question okay. uh this next question is one that i think we've had a guest discuss before but that doesn't make it any worse no. or any easier to discuss uh oh. <laughs> oh no this question is how can you make a big bad into a target to aspire to instead of something that's just annoyingly hard to kill or overpowered or plot armored so like an enemy i'm just trying to clarify the question so basically something like rather than just like a a big bad evil dude that just shows up that you have to fight something to aspire to beat so something that you're trying to like driven to beat yeah i think i like to imagine it as uh somebody asking about you know you know the narrative form of you have to know your enemy and so usually the big bad makes an appearance early on um sometimes He's overpowering you. Other times, the big bad is just out of reach. But how can you make them into something that the players want to chase after and defeat instead of just keeping them out of arm's reach, not letting them fight them, or just kind of making them overpowered and unable to be killed? I have a perfect example of this. Mm -hmm. Very first episode that we started was the camp was the caravan situation and that lasted for way too many episodes that i was unfortunately ha- had to do because there was too many events that they needed to do but anyways introduce the big bad evil dude to them but don't tell them it's the big bad evil dude one of the caravan members was turniston froust or not turniston froust uh was was a ha- was a half orcish man. I can't remember the name of him, unfortunately. But um, they spoke to him. Seemed totally normal. They enjoyed conversations with him. Asked for aid from them, and that went on for probably a good like twenty episodes. So probably about like five or six sessions, and then they started getting suspicious of him. Because this was actually the time of the swamp, and they all, every person in the entire caravan that was at disadvantage to everything because of exhaustion, they could start to see some of his lies, start to see hints of problems, but they didn't ask certain things and got gathered enough information to kind of grasp that he was 
essentially evil, but that he was hiding something. So then they were cautious of him. Later down the road, there's an ambush in the middle of the night, and they have to defend themselves. Well, the caravan cart that that orcish man's a part of seems to be taking off. And they try to give chase, but they lost sight of them because it was night, and then there was the ambush. They definitely learned at that point that this was somebody that they needed to chase down. So they traveled to Waterdeep based off of their current direction they were already going to, and started to ask around specifically for this man. And nobody knew mm-hmm. who he was. Nothing. They didn't have any information about them. And one of the characters um, used to live in Waterdeep. So had a family situation there and went into the basement of their destroyed home to essentially um, find any relevant information for what they might be trying to do. That's when they found pictures of the orcish man with the name of Turniston Froust. And they connected the two that that was an alias that this person had. So they had to then use the alias or use the, the name based off the picture and go from there. So the act of them having to search out the person that they knew at that point was evil that had essentially betrayed them gave them that drive for sure because they didn't have to stay in Waterdeep to do something. They were there initially to find um, cultists, cultist members, and turn into this whole situation with uh, a militia group known as the Sparks that Turniston Froust seemed to be a part of after some later discovery. And it was extremely uh rewarding to them they when they finally defeated him um it was a big thing because they had to go through a mansion that animated it became a big ordeal and that yeah it was so improvised large scale because this man had nothing to do with this up until, because I gave some of them certain roles, and he he had a certain role, but not to this severity. Like he was not meant to be <laughs> this big, but um, it just divulged into it because of certain actions they took. They unfortunately uh, revealed themselves after one of his lies, so that helped in his knowledge of what uh, what to look out for, but. Making a big bad evil dude that's unreachable or is rumored isn't necessarily the what your players need to be driven to to go and best them. It could be this mm-hmm. this person beat someone in a duel. It beat the it beat one of the players in a duel, and then later down the road, it becomes a similar situation where they're forced to fight each other again in another one to one except this time it's down to death. And that brings a huge um, self-confidence sort of deal where it's like, before, you destroyed me, but now I'm much stronger. And that's when the fight becomes more dramatic. Uh, Doesn't have to be a fight either. Yeah, and uh, one thing that I will always say is if your players... Get into a confrontation with your big bad evil dude. 
early on and best them, then good on them. Yeah. Let it happen. If they best your big, bad, evil opponent of any kind, then they won. They won against that big, bad, evil person. Uh, and if that means that the plot changes dramatically, then the plot changes dramatically. Oh, yeah. Um, but to essentially railroad in in that direction of uh, an invulnerable enemy just ends up being frustrating in a kind of a game where anything can happen. Uh, you know, it's important to remember things like resurrection is a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's always somebody else that could just take over that power vacuum. Maybe there was, was an opponent that would have become an ally to you who, without this big bad evil person to oppose them, ends up turning evil in a different way. Yeah, the... The roll of the die can be both a blessing and a curse for a DM. I had an instance at the beginning of our campaign where a certain NPC that was friendly to the group died. He failed a saving throw. Wasn't necessarily, like, super important, but was supposed to be alive based off of the uh, module's uh, narrative. But, uh, no. Was destroyed. So... I had him perish. And because of that singular death that had made an impact on the players, because this character was uh, uh, resourceful, supportive, all that, they constructed a monument to him. And there was prayer. There was a ceremony to, to uh, send his dwarven kin to the earth. It was incredible. That's something that can't be forged by a dice. It just happens. It's like, you can mm -hmm. absolutely plan out a character's death, but there's something about, like you said, railroading it. I, I call it a cutscene. And it was something that I learned while watching initially before. There was a video that I saw where they talked about, I can't remember who it was, but they talked about how one of the players wanted to do something during an execution, and they straight up said, no, this is happening, just sit and watch, it's going to give you a reason later. And that's what I would call cutscening, where something is I think, impossible to do. I think that with cutscening, as with anything else... A lot of it is in how you communicate the scene. Um, in, say, an execution, uh, I have either outright said you're definitely in a position where you know that you would not be able to do anything except for watch, mostly because of the crowd pressing in on you and the numerous guards that you're able to see from around. The distance and things like that. You can still try, but you are well aware that there will definitely be severe consequences. Yeah, this was, um, I think this the from the story, it was they wanted to use hold person on the executioner as the axe was up. Um, but yeah, exactly like what you're saying. Like, you know, you're in a crowd. You're not going to be able to hide from doing this. 
you're gonna be seen because you're not gonna be able to unless they have some ways to get around that like a sorcerer's uh subtle spell certain thing but um you there's and gonna even be then, repercussions all it might take is a is a high enough insight check to see that the sorcerer holding out their hand is the one well if we're gonna get technical let me put up my glasses here um <laughs> that i don't have i don't know if hold person is somatic or verbal Some only spells that sorcerers have don't require verbal or somatic spell somatic components they just will it and it happens they have to use um hmm. uh sorcery points to do it but basically they don't need to have yeah. any components to the spell if it doesn't have material Yeah, so they'd be able to do yeah. it, but <laughs> but there's still there's look th we're still we're given we're given causes and stuff. Look, you're still gonna probably okay. be seen. <laughs> there's still gonna be and problems. even then, even if you're not something like that, let's be honest, it's an execution. the The executioner raises their axe, freezes, says, "I can't move." <laughs> Somebody else comes over. <laughs> You halted it for And while minute. you're concentrating on hold person on that one, <laughs> the other person carries out the execution. But then, and now but then there's a people. wanted poster for unknown sorcerer <laughs> interfered with execution. <laughs> or unknown mage. Which, totally fine. Yeah, totally. I am always an advocate of players should be able to express their their desire to do actions and have the agency to do just about anything but that i mean that is within reason for their character you know right. like a fighter can't just suddenly cast spells unless they're an eldritch knight within the realm that just of, doesn't happen uh, magical reality <laughs> yeah uh but there could be consequences mm -hmm. you know even if you're not discovered well, congratulations, you just cast some extra suspicion from the guardsmen on all magic users. Yeah, really. As simple as that. They're just all now slightly more suspicious of any magic user. Yeah. Uh actions with a cost, if there if there were to be one. Like uh mm -hmm. you know, I mean stealing things. People don't forget heavy larceny or uh whatever it's called. Um Grand. Grand Larceny, thank you. My players stole like 4,800 golds worth of things. I mean, there's gonna be repercussion for that. It's been about a month and a half. Stuff like that just doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even if the repercussion is as simple as they're hunting down thieves in this area who stole this much money from this person who then went bankrupt and is now living on the street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like... There are still consequences to your mm -hmm. actions. They may not affect you directly all the time, but they still happen. Oh, yeah. They still burned the bridge if they were seen <laughs> or if they were known. I had to go through that episode and I think jot down every single suspicious behavior that they did before the, before the quote-unquote heist. <laughs> it, it was not... It was not... <laughs> Um, yeah, it was not incognito. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that we're going to have to call it here. All right. Uh, 
thank you again for coming on. Absolutely. And to all of my listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Running the Table with Tyler from Miss Rolled Adventures. And as always, if you find yourself with questions that you want answered about anything tabletop role-playing game related, please send them to rttpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me at Running the Table on either Twitter or Facebook.